This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to my podcast, and this is a Cross and the Jukebox episode. We examine uh, music and culture and religion and roots through the grid of country music and some other forms of musical expression from time to time as well. Today, I want to talk about a song by Don Williams called Good Old Boys Like Me. Now, one of the things that really helps us is if you will rate us and leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps for other people to hear the content here and let people know about the podcast so that they can sign up and listen to us uh, too. So if you know anybody who's interested in A, religion, or B, culture, or C, country music, any of them, but certainly if they like all three, if they're interested in all three, let them know about our podcast uh, here. Now, this is a song that might not be quite as familiar to some of you as some of the other songs that we've we've talked about the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, because it's it's not a song that's uh, that, that's sort of uh, gone out into the cultural ethos the way that maybe he stopped loving her today or I saw the light um, uh, have, but it is really really important in understanding what's really going on in American religion. Now, I'm, as those of you who know me know, I'm from Mississippi, but I'm from a part of Mississippi that isn't what you think of when you think of uh, William Faulkner or Tupelo, Elvis Presley, that that sort of thing. It's a, it's a, a little part right on the coastline of uh, Mississippi, right on the, the Gulf of Mexico, that's shaped by New Orleans, which is right over the state line from New Orleans, and so influenced by that, by Southern European immigrants, and then later Vietnamese uh, immigrants, and so the, the culture comes from that. So most of the kids that I grew up with uh, had a vich at the end of their names, and uh, so you had that sort of Serbian, Croatian, and all sorts of Italian, all sorts of other um, Southern uh, European uh, immigrants. They're so largely Catholic and influenced by an Air Force base. So we had a, a major, it still still do, have a major Air Force base there, Kiesler, and so people would come in from all over the place, and so you would have people who would be in school one year and they'd be gone the next and somebody else would, would be here. So one of the questions that you would learn to ask when you encountered somebody new is, where are you from? And what I noticed is, as somebody who had always lived in the same place, in the same house, go back home right now, my parents are still in the same house that I grew up in. Uh, my brother is living in my grandmother's house right next door that they had lived in for ages and an eternity. And I would say to some of these kids, where are you from? And sometimes they would say, well, everywhere. We, we, we've, been, we've been all over the place. We've gone around everywhere in the Air Force. And I always felt sorry for kids from everywhere because I thought well, it would be awful not to, not to have that one place that is home, to be from somewhere. But as the years have gone by, I realized 
somewhereness has its downsides too. And uh, that's one of the things that Don Williams is talking about in this song. So he, he starts off talking about the experience of being a child in a Southern Bible Belt sort of ecosystem. So he, he uses a lot of images uh, at the very outset of this song. So he, he sings, when I was a kid, Uncle Remus would put me to bed with a picture of Stonewall Jackson above my head. Then daddy comes in to kiss his little man with gin on his breath and a Bible in his hand. He talked about honor and things I should know. Then he'd stagger a little as he went out the door. I can still hear the soft Southern winds in the live oak trees and those Williams boys. They still mean a lot to me. Hank in Tennessee. I guess we're all going to be what we're going to be. So what do you do with good old boys like me? Now, there's a lot just in that first uh, little bit of lyrics. But I think that what you hear there is a sort of anthem for Bible Belt cultural Christianity, not a baptizing of it, but a sense of ambivalence about it. So he's, he's using these, these cultural icons, Stonewall Jackson, Confederate Civil War general. And if you think about the way that throughout most of the 20th century in the South, these major figures from the Confederacy, it wasn't just that they were defended in cultural memory. They were valorized. So there's a uh, there are all sorts of stories about the the seminary that I attended. Uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, had a a president, John Sampy, um, in the early to mid twentieth century. And uh, one of the stories is that uh, he said in a class, "Is everyone a sinner?" And a student said, "Yes." The Bible says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." And he said, was, uh, are you a sinner? And the student said, yes, everybody is. And he said, was Robert E. Lee a sinner? And the student said, well, yes. And he was rebuked uh, for they couldn't bring himself to say that Robert E. Lee, that he used as this picture of honor and valor and, and so forth. Now, as you'll see later on, I mean, there, there's so much there which is one of the reasons why we have all of the kind of ongoing culture wars about Confederate memorials and and so forth to say what was really at the heart of that Confederate uh, project, for for lack of a better word, propping up a system of human slavery. In this sort of mentality where Stonewall Jackson is an example of honor and valor, that doesn't want to be talked about. It wants to be seen as this moral exemplar. And a a similar thing with Uncle Remus. So um, you you think of um, a Disney Plus streaming service from from Disney has almost every Disney movie uh, that's, uh, that's been made, except for Song of the South, and very good reason for that. Because if you look at Song of the South, what you see is this, this taking of the Br'er Rabbit and, uh, and Uncle Remus uh, stories and uh, picturing them in terms of this very paternalistic uh, idea of enslaved human beings as happy and, um, and really glad to be in the situation that they were in. I mean, just so many huge, huge problems with that. But 
those stories were meant to not only kind of entertain, but also to to create examples of living sort of Aesop's sorts of fables. But again, without talking about the horror that's underneath all of that, the, the system of white supremacy uh, in that world. So you have those images along with Hank Williams, the Shakespeare of the South, uh, songwriter extraordinaire, and Tennessee Williams, a poet, playwright, massive intellect, streetcar named Desire, Glass Menagerie, all of those those Tennessee Williams uh, plays. You have those all being sort of held here together along with the Bible. Dad has the Bible in his hand. So the, the implication here is that all of this is being utilized for the same purpose. So you have the Bible, you have Uncle Remus stories rooted in in Southern culture. You have uh, Hank and Tennessee Williams. You have the live oak trees, this, this natural ecosystem around you. Um, you have Stonewall Jackson and that sort of idea teaching you about honor and all of those things with the Bible. And there's gin on his breath. So the image that's coming forward here is what Flannery O'Connor uh, wrote about when she said that the South was Christ haunted. So her point was, she said, I am not suggesting that the South is Christian. She said, I'm suggesting that the, the South is Christ haunted. And she said what she meant by that is it is, quote, a region with a ubiquitous gospel, but without the ubiquity of gospel power. Well, that's really what Don Williams is, is talking about here, is that there's a haunting of Stonewall Jackson and Uncle Remus and the Jesus of the Bible. It's all part of the... Uh, the system here, but underneath all of that is if you pay attention, someone's stumbling a little because he's intoxicated with gin. And on top of all of that, he's suggesting here in this song that there's a haunting sort of in the more literal sense. Uh, he, he talks about the, uh, the sound that is made by the, the wind in the trees. And there's a, there's a haunting sort of imagery here that's, that's almost literal. So the, the Christ in the Christ-haunted South that Flannery O'Connor's talking about is more of a poltergeist than an unseen presence. There, there are all sorts of things that are uprooted by all of these things. They, they, they engage the, the passions in all sorts of ways. So again, if you go back to Flannery O'Connor, she wrote a letter to a nun where she says uh, that, that people were critiquing her, her short stories because uh, although she was Roman Catholic, all of her major figures were Southern evangelicals of, of various sorts. And she said, uh, people think that my Protestant prophets, as she calls them, are fanatics. She says, but the Protestants around me, they think that monks and nuns are. 
And she said, well, here's how she views it. Quote, for my part, I think the only difference between them is that if you are a Catholic and have this intensity of belief, you join the convent and are heard from no more. Whereas if you are a Protestant and have it, there is no convent for you to join and you go about in the world getting into all sorts of trouble and drawing the wrath of people who don't believe anything much all down around your head. Now, that's an important statement because there's an assumption in Bible Belt cultural Christianity that says you need to believe the Bible, but not too much. You need to receive the gospel, but not too much, not enough that it's going to make you out of step with the culture that's around you. So the the Bible needs to do for you what Stonewall Jackson's uh, example does for someone who valorizes that or what Uncle Remus stories do for people who receive those. It needs to make you a good Southerner, make you a good part of the, the cultural world that you're living in right now. And so if you actually go too far down this path, you are going to bring the wrath of people who don't believe very much down upon your head. So uh, you can, for instance, at the time that this song uh, would have been written, all sorts of people who could talk about uh, the fact that they believe in the unity of humanity in Adam and in Christ, but the minute that you start suggesting that that means that Galatians 3:28 and 29, that there should be no white supremacy within the church and that there should be no uh, white supremacy in the, the world, then now you're in trouble because there's there's something that's going on often in this kind of cultural appropriation of religion that is using the religion for the cultural purposes, not, not just speaking the religion into that culture. So Flannery O'Connor elsewhere talks about if the church is not a divine institution, she says, it will turn into an Elks club by and by and can be dispensed with, and you will find yourself going into the wilderness to establish other future Elks clubs, if that's, if that's all that the church is. And that's precisely the issue. So uh, Walker Percy will uh, write later on that Southern religion is not Christian. So Southern cultural Christianity is not Christian, but Greek, and specifically Stoic. And so it, it gives you this uh, rule of life that you can see in Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or uh, other places using Christian sources and Christian themes, but it's rooted in honor culture, not in the gospel. So he says, that's why how curiously foreign to the South sound the Decalogue, the Beatitudes, the doctrine of the mystical body. Now, I think in a lot of ways, Walker Percy is reacting to his uncle Will. His father died by suicide. His mother died in, uh, in an automobile accident. And so he and his brothers were, were raised by their, their uncle Will in Greenville, Mississippi. And Will Percy was a, a Stoic. He, he had a, a Stoicism, a sense of Greek classical tradition that was itself a reaction to a, a kind of um, populist revivalism that he mistrusted and for a lot of 
uh, perfectly legitimate reasons. So if you read in Lanterns on the Levee, he talks about the sort of mob, white supremacist mobs that would uh, that would show up against his his uncle, who was a U.S. senator running for re-election in Mississippi, and they're reacting uh, to him. And he's, he writes that these are the sort of people who will go to revivals, get all emotionally involved, and then fight and fornicate in the bushes afterward. So for for Percy, this was all about kind of an emotional an emotional reaction, but it wasn't about a way of living. So he reacted to that with a way of living <laughs> that that doesn't experience uh, revival or, or, or anything like it. Now, in, in reality, though, they're both hitting at, at things that are indeed present in cultural Christianity, wherever it shows up. It shows up in different ways, but whether you're talking about the Danish church that Soren Kierkegaard is reacting to, uh, or you're talking about sort of Southern honor culture, uh, cultural Christianity, wherever you see this sort of nominal Christianity where the Christianity is a means to an end or a, a means of tribal belonging, that's what he's experiencing here. He says he talked about honor and things I should know. So what it means to be part of the tribe, what it means to belong. And then he staggered a little as he went out the door. So he was sensing, even at the time, they don't even believe it themselves. So as he talks about Thomas Wolfe, you you can't go home again, look homeward angel. It's sort of very nostalgic, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but nostalgic look at melancholy, at the sense of being unable to recapture that place of, of home. Thomas Wolfe, and then Hank Williams who is experiencing this sense of alienation for all kinds of reasons, Tennessee Williams, uh, writing about it as well. He says, it doesn't matter how far I go. I can still hear all of these things. So there's a sense of appreciation, but there's also a sense of suffocation. So he he talks about um, later on uh, about the people that he grew up with that got caught up in drug abuse and, and and all of these other things. He says, but I was smarter than most and I could choose. I learned to talk like the man on the six o'clock news. So he learned that there is a way of transcending one's roots to try to get away from that, to try to uh, avoid being suffocated in that in such a way that you have to find some means of escape that could be found in that kid on speed that he grew up with or his dad self-medicating with the gin or by implication the the sort of um the sort of hedonism that leads to death that you can see in Hank or Tennessee Williams he says i i tried to escape all of that by learning to talk with this sort of generic kind of accent, talk like the man on the on the six o'clock news. That was part of the issue. The other part of the issue ultimately is fear. He says you can you can hear these sounds, and it seems to me that the sounds sort of stand in for the the deeper sort of sense of restlessness behind all of this. He says, but you ain't afraid if you're washed in the blood like I was. So that the the washing in the blood 
was a way to answer fear. Now, there's a lot of that that shows up in cultural Christianity uh, revivalism. We don't see a lot of that in the sort of market-based Christianity that you often see now in North America, which often uh, tries to seem more aspirational. It doesn't really talk much about fear and about hell in, in ways that I think are, are wrong. But uh, the, the older system here would, would sometimes answer that legitimate sense of fear that I think is, is put there in terms of the conscience of knowing that one is a sinner with a, a kind of easy remedy that can sound like grace. So uh, I, had, um, I had a woman who said to me one time, I was taking a group of kids when I was a youth pastor off to a youth camp, and she said, I want my son to go. She said, and here's the most important thing. I want, him, I want you to let him get out on the ball field and everything else he does. I want him to get just as exhausted as he can be because I want him to be, when they come out at night and give the invitation, I just want him to walk down the aisle one time at the invitation. She said, because I know that when he comes back, He's going to go right back to drinking and partying, and I just don't think he's going to live past high school, and I want to know that he's saved. And so for her, she wasn't thinking about the sort of gospel that says, take up your cross and follow me, be united to Christ, and to, to take out on this, this life of discipleship through faith, she's thinking about that one-time moment of a transaction that would mean that then he could go back to anything else that he's doing without another thought of it. That, that was a, and in many places still is, kind of a basic assumption of the gospel. It answers the fear, but it's not really answering the fear here. Because this isn't, at least in the way this song is, is articulating, it's not really a washing in blood. It's a, it's a sense of tribal belonging. And so he says, so what are you going to do with good old boys? And I think a lot of people are thrown by this because they hear good old boy as a slur. We, we think about it's a good old boy system in there. This, these politicians have got a good old boy uh, system. I don't think he means it that way. I think he means it in uh, in the legitimate sense of a good guy who is doing all of the things that he is supposed to do, but it doesn't work. The stoicism, the honor culture, the, all of that, it doesn't work, which is why the gin shows up with the Bible. So what do you do with good old boys like me? And there's a kind of resignation. I guess we're all going to be what we're going to be. Uh, sometimes you'll have Christian Smith and other sociologists have talked about moral therapeutic deism, this kind of religion that falls short of Christianity. I actually think that I see maybe even more often than cultural therapeutic deism, a sort of a moral therapeutic deism, a kind of cultural therapeutic animism, which isn't as though there's a distant God who's not very involved in your life, although that's true, but that there are all of these forces around you that you're, you're afraid of all of the time. And it's not so much that you're trying to be moral in terms of living up to um, a moral code as much as it is that you're trying to culturally fit in and to belong. A kind of 
prosperity gospel, even if there's not explicitly a prosperity uh, gospel. And so it, it becomes this sort of religion, and we're seeing that change so that now you're having a kind of cultural Christianity that not only sort of downplays Christ and him crucified, but also downplays the church. So the, the things that Flannery O'Connor's worried about, the church becoming an Elks Club, there are not many people who are members of Elks Clubs right now. So even that idea of you can't turn the church into just another voluntary society when there's not, very few people are members of voluntary societies. If anything, the church has become less like an Elks Club in terms of cultural Christianity and more like the next door app that helps you to see what's going on in your neighborhood, even if you don't know your neighbors at all. So it's it's sort of a kind of similar, sort of an inverted version of Flannery O'Connor's Church Without Christ. Um, this is a Christ without church in terms of, of this view, which is why you can have people who not only don't go to church, would never think of going to church, wouldn't know what church to go to if they wanted to, but they've got a Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, sign that they bought in a mall kiosk where I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Well, that's uh, not a commitment to the authority of Scripture uh, coming from a relationship with Jesus Christ in many cases, as much as it is a tribal marking, say this is the kind of person that I am, and a talisman uh, in the same way that that sort of speaking incantations in a new age sense could work. But underneath all of that is fear. So in this song, Don Williams says, nothing makes a sound in the night like the wind does. Uh, I think there's imagery there of the wind uh, blows where it wills that Jesus uses in John 3. You, you see the results, but you don't see the wind. There's a sense of, is that just wind? Or is there something else going on out there? And I don't know. But you ain't afraid if you're washed in the blood like I was. The, the blood is the response to the fear. Now, there's a reason for that. There's a, a sense in which an uneasy conscience is going to be constantly trying to distract itself and, and trying to find ways to answer um, that uneasy conscience. And part of the fear is not just the fear of what your conscience tells you about yourself, but also the fear that whatever you're, uh, whatever you're counting on to ease that conscience maybe isn't actually working. So you come back again, Flannery O'Connor. She writes in her prayer journal, she's talking about her erotic thought that I know you, you think of that in terms of sexual adventurism, but that's not actually what she means. She's talking about erotic, meaning bodily. What she's talking about is scotch oatmeal cookies. And she says, uh, then you begin to wonder if your confessions have been adequate and if you are compounding sin on sin, this probably comes from all the faulty training and being taught by the sisters to measure your sins by a slide rule. She says, it drives some folks nuts and some folks to the Baptist, and I feel sure it will drive me nuts and not to the Baptist. She assumes that those are mutually exclusive categories. And let me tell you, they're not. Uh, but what she's meaning there is that there's a, uh, there's a way to say uh, this sort of um, view of a once saved, always saved sort of transaction 
that says, I'm able to know when my conscience bothers me that it's all over with because I prayed a prayer in vacation Bible school, or it can lead one to this sort of hyper-scrupulous sort of, uh, did, did I confess enough? But actually, those those two things, again, aren't mutually exclusive because there are just as many people as her saying, you know, did I confess enough in the confessional? I see the same thing going on with people who have been taught, if you just repeat this prayer, then you're forever saved no matter what happens to you. Who will say, did I pray that prayer with sincerity? Did I say the words right? Did I really repent enough of sin when I was repenting of sin? Did I really believe enough when I uh, when I was uh, believing? So it, it can lead again to this sense of fear if you don't have an understanding of what it means to be hidden in Christ and included in Christ and what the Spirit is doing in the life of the person who is in Christ. So what's needed here is a really, not just a robust doctrine of justification, although that's needed, but a sense of oneself as included in Christ in that doctrine of justification. It needs to reach to um, the psyche as well as to the the cognitive tissue as you're, you're thinking about it. So when Don Williams is writing ambivalently about all of this, he, Tennessee Williams, somebody who's writing a lot about this underlying violence and gothic horror in sort of Southern life, and Hank Williams, who's as we've talked about before on this program, honky-tonking and I saw the light all mixed in uh, together here. When what he's really, I think, rooting around for is an understanding of the cross. You know, we mentioned Jeremiah 29, 11 uh, earlier. Jeremiah 29, 11 is kind of bad news in some ways because it's saying you're going to be planted in Babylon That's going to happen, but have children, build homes, live lives, and it is not hopeless. I have a future, even though you may not see it. Hebrews 11, they did not see what it is that God had for them. It's not hopeless, but it's also not an easy answer. It is Romans 8, that groaning Uh, out with the Spirit for the revelation of the sons of God. The church really needs to to hear that. What Don Williams sang about, when I was a kid, I ran with a kid down the street, and I watched him burn himself up on bourbon and speed. The dad was kind of slowly being given over to the gin. The kid was quickly, probably because of the speed, being given over to the bourbon and to the drugs. But I was smarter than most, and I could choose. I learned to talk like the man on the 6 o'clock news. And when I was 18, Lord, I hit the road. But the problem here is that leaving doesn't answer the problem. Because he says, it doesn't really matter how far I go. I can still hear it. There's a sense in which you hear this and you say, he's saying, you know, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm still connected to home in a nostalgic sense. I think that's true. But it's also Uh, I think you're saying, it doesn't matter how far I go, I'm still kind of scared by the sound of that wind. I'm still sort of hoping that being washed in the blood of the Lamb will protect me from the sound of that wind, that I don't end up ultimately 
as a better behaved version of that kid who burned himself up with bourbon and speed, who just happens to have known how to shed his Southern accent. The, the deliverance for him here isn't by the blood. It's from leaving this community, but that doesn't answer it either. So I think there's an open question at the end of this song, sense of ambivalence, a sense of lament about cultural Christianity. And I think the gospel answers that ambivalence with a cross, that rebirth is possible, but rebirth is possible through Christ and him crucified. So the crisis that comes to people, as many of us have experienced, who wonder, is the Christianity around me, is it really just Southern honor culture with a hood ornament on top of it? That question is answered not by more of the same tribal belonging, but by something that stands over it in judgment of it and says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, things are changing culturally. A lot of this doesn't make sense, what Williams is talking about. Uh, Not only because if you go to a lot of uh, communities in uh, the sort of nominally Christian uh, Bible Belt, all of the kids are talking like uh, the man on on the six o'clock news, which doesn't even make sense because nobody watches six o'clock news anymore. But they, they, that sort of homogenizing uh, factor is already at work. And because increasingly the South is not as Christ haunted as much as it's just haunted, like everywhere else. And there's a hopelessness that can be felt in all of that. What Williams is talking about here, I, I guess we're all going to be what we're going to be. Well, secularization means that people don't have to pretend to be Christians anymore if they're not. You don't have to have that in order to be part of a tribal belonging. But the Christian gospel can offer something older and better than honor culture, older and better than the Stonewall Jackson picture. And we can, we can talk about it in terms of crucifixion and life from the dead in Jesus Christ which means that we can have a sense of rootedness and a sense of alienation at the same time so that when we hear those longings that come out in Flannery O'Connor, in Hank Williams, and in Tennessee Williams, and in Don Williams, we can know where that comes from, but we cannot be then turned over to a sense of resignation or a sense of doing better we can instead remember the way of the cross. And we can say, those Christ-haunted folks, they still mean a lot to me, Hank and Flannery. They can tell us something. They can tell us about something of what's missing, but the way of Jesus tells us how to answer it. Thanks for listening to The Cross and the Jukebox in this episode here on the Russell Moore Podcast. If you haven't yet subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you listen, please do and tell other people about it. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe on the cover art and you'll find show notes, including some details you might have missed. And let me know in the comments or by email what song or artist you would like for us to talk about here on The Cross and the Jukebox. And we'll be back to do just that. Until then, onward, this is Russell Moore.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.